just gonna go we're gonna blast off it's we talk games arcade weekly second annual schmoptember i am your host kyle von kubik and i'm not alone in this cockpit i'm also joined along with keith the Robo Duke. Ahoy! Pew pew pew! Schmuptember! Blow it up! <laughs> Keith is always reliable for the impromptu fold. Yes, yes. I'm uh, I'm like that dude from Police Academy, only cheaper. Yeah, only not good. <laughs> yep. And we're also joined along with a very special guest, one half of the Retro League podcast, Jungle Rat Rob. Hey, what's up? Rob, I have to admit that I was going to ask you to actually kick off this Schmuptember podcast by saying hello, welcome one and all, and then I was going <laughs> to jump in and cut you off because I'm so used to hearing you say that on your podcast. But for those who aren't familiar with your show, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about it and where they can find it each week? Yeah, the Retro League is a weekly, I say nostalgia-based show because we like to look back on the video games of the 80s and 90s and sometimes the 70s or 2000s, but we also branch out to movies and just other pop culture of the 20th century and classic times that we remember from when we were kids. TheRetroLeague.com, we have forums there where we communicate with the listeners and we get emails every week and it's really a collaborative effort with all of our listeners. Right, and occasionally you guys give out prizes to listeners who write in. Yeah, yeah, we got our, our question of the week, and we get a lot of good stories, and sometimes it's hard to think up of a new question every week, but it's always it's always fun. Yeah, you guys have really created a great community, and for members of our own listenership, our own community, uh, you might be familiar with Rob and Hugh from the Retro League when we had some cross-synergy happening for Pac Month, and if you did miss those episodes of the Retro League for Pac Month, make sure you Check them out. Look at the back catalog. There's some great content on there. You'll really enjoy it. Rob, thank you very much for being a part of our show and helping us kick off Schmuptember. I'm very excited to get started. We're talking about a game this week that is truly unique. It's 1983's Blaster by Williams, but more specifically by Eugene Jarvis, somebody that we've talked about constantly on our program because uh, of his era he was one of the best video game designers now blaster might not be remembered as fondly as smash tv or narc but it is very significant in the history of video games it's actually a watermark for what they were able to do with the technology available this game is a first person 3d shooter and i have to be honest i had a lot of difficulties trying to figure out which games i wanted to pick for my making mechanics i don't know a lot of games that came before this that used that first person view granted when this game came out i was also one years old 
<laughs> and I don't think I had even touched an arcade game yet or anything. So it's hard to think of other games. But if you're going to really think of making mechanics, I would just name other Eugene Jarvis games. You know, I think like Robotron 2084 is in the making mechanics of this because it's apparently a quasi sequel to Robotron 2084. Yes, in my research of the game, I saw this too. Uh, Blaster is listed as a quasi sequel to Robotron 2084. However, I'd like to go on record and say that it's not a quasi sequel, it is a direct sequel. Especially when considering the story between these two games. I mean, that sounds goofy, but Blaster starts off by saying in the uh, tracked mode, it gives a little story and it tells you that the year is 2085, one year after Robotron, and the Robotron have taken over. actually have it here if you want to hear the word-for-word story of Blaster. Yes, please, Keith, hit us with that story. It is the year 2085. The Robotrons have destroyed the human race. You escape in a stolen space shuttle. Your destination? Paradise. (laughs) A remote outpost 20 million light years away. Now, is that time or distance? I'm not sure. I think it's uh, 20 levels, (laughs) 20 waves (laughs) actually away from you. Uh, And does paradise exist? Can civilization be started again? These questions will be answered at the end of your journey. But first, you must... Blast or be blasted. All right. Now, there's two things I've got to say about this story. (laughs) Blaster is probably one of few examples that tells you you failed the last game. Yeah. Yeah. Because if this game is a sequel to Robotron 2084, it starts off by telling you, you done fucked up. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I also like the game saying that at the end, you'll find out if Paradise exists. Uh, No, you're not, because this game is fucking impossible. (laughs) You know, maybe the three people on the Twin Galaxy scoreboard did, but I'm sure that the three people on this line did not. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I really like that. I, I feel like more games should have a sequel that picks up from losing the first game but it makes even more sense back in these days when games didn't really end until you got a game over there wasn't really a whole lot of games with a congratulations you won back in the 80s in the arcades you're right a lot of games uh, prior to blaster had kill screens and rollovers and speaking of games prior just so we can lay the foundation uh, for this game and kind of paint the picture of where it came from i'm going to quickly touch on 1974's spasm It was an early computer game uh, that involved space exploration in a first-person 3D view. And that's about it as far as connections concerned between that game and Blaster. And while it's a loose connection, Spasm is considered the first 3D space exploration game. It was created by Jim Bowery for the Play-Doh computer system. Play-Doh computer system? It's a moldable... <laughs> no, Keith, not the dough-like substance you make fake spaghetti with. Oh, okay. It's as in Plato, Plato the philosopher. Oh, yes, thinking deep about games. <laughs> all right. How about a game we're probably all very familiar with, 1980s Battle Zone by Atari? I think it's a good pull because it's probably the first game people think about when it comes to early 3D first-person shooters. Yeah, that's the tank one, right? That's right, and I have two other games that came prior to this that I absolutely absolutely adore they came out the same year 1983 both put out by konami one we talked about on the show already it's juno first and the other is gyrus or gyrus depending on who you ask 
Now, while these games are not first-person 3D shooters like Blaster, nor do they give the same sense of free roaming as Blaster does, there was an effort to play with perspective and give a feeling of three dimensions or giving a feeling of depth. Gyrus was a tunnel shooter similar to Tempest, where enemies would approach your ship from the background and scale up accordingly. And Juno first had the moving plane that would give you the sensation and feeling of depth with raster graphics. Yeah, we go more in depth in an episode. Find it at wetalkgames.com. Yes, definitely check out that episode and check out that game. It's one of my favorites and it's often overlooked. Now let's jump ahead to some games that came after Blaster. And maybe Blaster wasn't a direct influence of, but Blaster is definitely more similar to these titles. How about 1985 Space Harrier by Sega? I'm sure you guys are familiar with that one. Yes. For me, Space Harrier is the earliest example of a game that is so similar to the play mechanics and the sensation you get when playing Blaster, but it came two years after. Which is why I think Blaster is of note, which is why I think it's a watermark, because of what it was able to achieve. There were a lot of arcade games at the time of 1983 when Blaster was out that were playing with a 3D perspective. A lot of them were vector games, and the downfall for vector games were that if there were too many elements on the screen, it just looked like a wire mess. Blaster uses raster graphics with scaling, so there's asteroids getting bigger as they approach you. There's astronauts tumbling through space getting bigger as they approach you. <laughs> the space vampires got bigger as they approached you. Yeah, and the missiles on the screen coming towards you getting bigger. It's... Right, causing spider webbing on the screen when it hits yeah, you. Yeah, but uh, and unlike Space Harrier, since it's in, it's actually in space, you know, while Space Harrier is a dude running on land, you know, never understood that. Did you ever have the privilege <laughs> of actually playing Space Harrier in the arcade in the sit-down cabinet? Have I? Yeah. Uh, yes, in Shenmue. That is not the same thing, Keith. <laughs> I legitimately had the privilege of playing the game in the proper sit-down cabinet when I visited Fun Spot in New Hampshire. And what's cool about it is you sit down in the cabinet and it actually has hydraulics that move depending on what you're doing on the screen. And it really lends to the sensation of playing it. And truly, for me, that is the best way to play that game. Oh, hmm. I don't. yeah, I don't think I've ever experienced that, actually. It's definitely an experience. And while I like the game Space Harrier, yeah. it's not the same when you play it on your iPhone phone as compared to playing it in a proper arcade cabinet like yeah that. i've played a afterburner in the arcade cabinet sit down one that moves around that's really cool too right moving on with the making mechanics i jump ahead to 1993's x by argonaut software this was put out by nintendo for the game boy and the reason i chose this game was because it's a good example of what blaster did it was using technology to its fullest potential and achieving the sensation of 3d flight and exploration I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. Often, it's the limitations of the hardware that drive the innovation and creativity in uh, not only video games, but just technology in general. And while we're on the subject of Argonaut Software and Nintendo, here's another game they put out. A game that resembles Blaster the closest than any other game I just mentioned on this list, 1993 Star Fox. Yes. I think most people, when they check out Blaster, are going to say that it is like a low-res Star Fox. <laughs> Would you guys agree? Definitely. I think in the very first stage, the fact that you're flying through arches, if it was possible to do some kind of like time travel, then it would seem like 
this game ripped off Star Fox. Now, Rob, we talked offline, but you actually didn't play this uh, via MAME. You played this on a compilation disc. Yeah, Midway Arcade Treasures uh, on the GameCube. All right, and how did that control on there? It's good enough. Hmm, I imagine you used the analog stick? Yeah, I I found that it was a little bit slow using the D-pad. Like, it was accomplishing the same job, but really needs an analog stick. Here's what I'll say about emulating this. Actually, before that, let me say that if you want to physically own these games, uh, the compilation discs that, uh, you know, the one that Rob played, uh, as well as the others that are out there, are excellent ways to discover games, and you can get them on the cheap. I would definitely recommend seeking out the Namco collection as well as the Midway collections that are out there. But if you don't own a compilation disc that has Blaster on it and you are going to emulate it, I want to give you a heads up that, at least for me, setting up the controls was a little difficult. I had to break out the XRK joystick. Keith, how about you? Did you have any difficulty? I, I actually didn't have any difficulty. I've been using a PlayStation 4 controller with a mini USB to USB cord, and I have a really cool program. Anyone out there looking for help with their control setups, it's called Input Mapper. And uh, using this program, uh, normally the Windows I'm running on will only detect an Xbox controller, but with this, it detects it as a PlayStation controller, sets it up perfectly. I played it with an analog stick, and it played great. It worked really, really well on the MAME. I wish I could play this in the arcade, but there's no, there's not much of a chance of any of us doing that, ever. Yeah, Blaster had a very limited run, and it is super rare. Yeah, there are three of them made. <laughs> no, there was more than three. There was only three sit-down versions of this game. Oh, but there were other stand-up versions that were... Yeah, there were upright cabinets, but they number in the hundreds. Speaking of the upright cabinet, this is one of those games that has a uh, kind of unique and weird-looking cabinet. It was vacuum form like plexiglass, not as stylized as the famous yellow Atari cabinet for Pong from the 70s, uh, but it has a curvature to the front and a flight stick as the control, and that means there's a trigger as well as a button on top of the joystick. And I'm guessing that that's why I had difficulty controlling the game, or at least setting up the controls for the game, because unless you're using a flight stick, you have to map your joypad or your arcade sticks to a two-hand configuration, which is not how the game was supposed to be originally played. Man, so I had heard a, a weird rumor about Blaster. I heard that in some of these molded plastic ones they would shrink after they got to an arcade, and so they would actually cause the monitor to get squeezed out of the machine. Wow, I didn't hear about this. Yeah. So I wasn't able to, like, corroborate this, look anything up on the internet, the, you know, stories to back this up, but, yeah, I'd heard that, like, the monitor in the arcade machine would just pop out on some of these arcade machines because the plastic would shrink. All right, well, we're going to say it is fact. That way people can use this show as a source on Wikipedia. <laughs> I truly believe the reason I had such difficulty mapping my controls was because the cabinet utilized a flight stick. Tilt, yaw, fire, and bomb. We're all done with one hand. And while we're on the subject of moving around in the game... Uh, I do want to preface this with saying that I did enjoy this game, but it really felt very sluggish. I don't know if you guys agree. Particularly moving left to right. Up and down was a little bit better, but left to right was very, again, sluggish. Yeah, there were definitely times where I couldn't even see all the projectiles because there was so much happening on screen. But even when I could, I sometimes felt like I just can't move fast enough to get out of the way of this. Speaking of too much on the screen, the level that you cited with flying through the arches is probably Mm -hmm. the biggest offender. There's like four initial stages when you start up the game, and you get to choose which one you want to go with and it gives you kind of like a 
criteria or just a mission what you're supposed to be doing when you're in that level so you know one level will say fly through the magic arches and no that's not a reference to mcdonald's and another one will (laughs) say like only shoot the red saucer first or last and there's a lot going on in each level but particularly with the level that rob is discussing with the arches i have down in my notes if ms paint had diarrhea (laughs) i mean there's just so much movement of colors happening on the screen and maybe it's me maybe it's my old man brain that can't interpret it all but it was very overwhelming i had the same problem but i will say i kind of dug it things are whizzing past you you're being shot at it's a lot it's overstimulation between that the limited visual presentation and the game being extremely challenging i think it's going to turn a lot of people off at first at first glance people are not going to really dig this game but i think there's something there worth digging into i think if you give blaster a chance you give it a little bit of time you're going to see some making mechanics and you're going to see some game mechanics in there that are going to remind you of other games you're going to play levels you know there's one level it's going to remind you of asteroids it's just a first person version of asteroids there's another level that will remind you of space invaders or galaga in the first person perspective and i think once you give the game some time once you give it a chance it's going to start to resonate with you and going back to the level with the flying through the arches that's your connection to robotron because you're flying through the arches as you're being shot at by gigantic robotrons it's just hard to appreciate at first glance because again there's so many goddamn colors assaulting your eyes yeah, and I gotta say, visually, you can kind of see the the lineage from Defender and Robotron. In whenever you hit something, they don't just vanish; they explode, and you see pixels go everywhere. You're right, Rob. And that effect, that disintegration effect, is spectacular. And the other thing that Blaster shares with Defender and Robotron is the reuse of the same sound effects. There's no real music to speak of, but all the bleeps and bloops that you're familiar with from Joust and Defender and Robotron are all here in this game. Those bleeps and bloops hit those notes for me. These were the sounds that I heard for the first time when I was standing on a milk crate playing these games when I was little. Keith, you mentioned this a lot. It's the vibe of the smoky arcade. Yeah, definitely, with all the sound effects. Just the weird look of it, and as we mentioned before, having to make up those stories for yourself because you can't even read at that age you're just looking at the images on the screen and yeah looking at the uh, the robot grid as they call it with the arches and everything exploding yeah everything gets really jumbled and confusing and you're not sure where to fly but it right looks- like i said it's ms paint diarrhea yeah. on your screen <laughs> it does look like that but it looks so cool to see this early on because I booted up the game and I started playing. I was like, wow, this, I was like, this looks nice. The sprites are all really cool. The scaling's really great. And then you see 1983 and it's like, what? Like, this is pretty early for this kind of game is, you know, coming before Space Harrier and everything. Right. You know? Obviously, I'm being hyperbolic, and it's because of the amount of primary colors just dashing across the screen. Uh, I was able to appreciate the graphics, too. I feel that some people, especially younger people, might have difficulty appreciating the graphics, but the game is, is just a technical achievement. Yeah, and even for someone like myself who loves going to all the arcades and play old arcade games, like, this was totally different 
new to me, but also really familiar. Now, there's 20 levels total, although I will admit I had a lot of difficulty getting past the four initial stages. Yeah, it's <laughs> really hard. But, uh, Keith, do you have the titles for each one of those stages? I do, and they repeat. As they go along. Okay, great. So why don't we talk about the four initial stages, and I'll talk about the criteria for each stage to get out of the loop. Yeah, so there are four initial levels to choose from, which are the first four waves. The right. Robot Grid. Right, now Robot Grid is the stage that we discussed earlier where you're uh, prompted to fly through the arches while dodging the gigantic Robotron. Yeah, it's not criteria to get through it. I think it's a certain distance you have to travel, and it's, it's point-based since uh, that was the whole point of most arcade games in the 80s and then you have level two planetoids which is like dock with the space station which apparently looks like a giant e <laughs> no it doesn't look like a giant e it is a giant e <laughs> <laughs> it's an electrified e in space and uh if you shoot it you regain energy and if you touch it you warp to the next level and it makes all the enemies in the level into ease for energy so you can pick up a bunch of energy as you fly through and warp to the very next stage right once you hit that you're just blasting through space at a ridiculous speed yeah and it's really cool the feel the feel it gives you flying uh, through it it's really awesome and then level three is the uh, aforementioned space vampires <laughs> that's right space vampires although sadly they look nothing like vampires to me they actually look like samus's ship from metroid yeah. this is a low-res interpretation but i guess they're piloting the thing space vampire of course there's totally space vampires in those ships don't question i'm not gonna it. question it there's definitely vampires in those ships and then the very next one is uh close to one of your favorites is saucer land Though it isn't the cool three-bottom, half-sphere saucers, this is the very classic... I mean, it looks like the, the saucer right out of Space Invaders. Right. For first-time listeners who aren't familiar with what Keith is mentioning right now, I have talked about this previously on the show. I have a favorite aesthetic for UFOs, particularly yeah. <laughs> the 90s Japanese anime style, which looked like a hubcap with you know three half-orbs on the bottom of it. And oftentimes they would put eyes on these things, and they'd fly fly around. Cosmo and the gang, I think, featured this sensibility. Oh. I also seem to remember Space Invaders 95, the attack of the Lunar Loonies featuring this style of UFO <laughs> as well. Rob, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, I can easily see the image in my mind of what you described. Yeah, in the 90s, I remember seeing it a lot, particularly with electromechanical ticket redemption machines, where there would be physical, mechanical puppets in that style. And because I experienced these things when I was younger... It had a strong influence on my epistemology. So yes, that is what Keith is referring to. And hey, if you are a first-time listener of the show, check out wetalkgames.com. It's a great portal to all the things we're doing on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at wetalkgames. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast. We're available on Stitcher iTunes, and anywhere where you can find a podcast. And please, like, comment, subscribe. It makes us feel nice and warm inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's all UFOs that Saucerland... World 4, which you said before you shoot the first one first or last? You're prompted in Saucerland to either shoot the red saucer first or last. So what happens is a configuration or flight pattern of saucers will come toward your ship. Yeah, in the Flying V Mighty Ducks formation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you shoot the red one first with your fucking knuckle puck, you'll get a nice point bonus. <laughs> 
Now let's say you miss the red saucer and you hit one of the other ones. Well, if you hit all the other saucers except for the red one and you hit that one last, you get a nice point bonus. Again, we're talking 1983, so it's the classic arcade sensibility. It's all about points. It's all about getting that high score. Yeah. And then yeah. it repeats after that with the levels. Well, it kind of repeats. Yeah, it repeats and then introduces more. So each stage is considered a wave, and at the top of the screen you'll see wave and a number. And the first four, the first initial stages that you can select from, and depending on which one you select from, will be the continuation of the next three consecutive waves. So so the fifth wave is just a repeat of one of the earlier stages. But in the sixth wave, I saw something that I thought Rob would really dig. The yes. Space Batcats. Yeah. That's what I thought of when you had mentioned vampires. I was thinking bats, and I'm like, no, wait, that's later in the game. And they didn't call those bats. They called them cats. Right. They're called space cats, but they have bat wings. They call the wave Cat World. <laughs> yeah, it's called Cat World, of all things. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to guess that none of us got past Cat World. Yeah. So, Keith, what are the other stages? Uh, well, so we, the, the time tunnel is six, where there's the little astronaut guys. Which oh, you're me- right. Yes, I did see this. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, you have to collect the astronauts tumbling through space. Yeah, which makes me think of Defender. You know, you're rescuing guys who are flying through space, and the animations on them really cool as they're, like, tumbling through space as you get closer to them, and you get points. I gotta be honest, I don't know how well of a rescue mission it would be for one of these astronauts tumbling through this particular space with all the colors and stimulation <laughs> happening. Like, if I was an astronaut, I would be completely catatonic, because my mind would be completely blown, a la 2001 Space Odyssey, Space Baby Club in a Taper. <laughs> It's, it's bad enough if they're in the uh, planetoids level where they're they're just floating in space through an asteroid belt, but then some of them have the misfortune of being stuck in a time tunnel. Where even are they going to be if they emerge from that? Yeah, I can imagine them back at headquarters going, well, we have another one who shit his pants and went crazy. Because <laughs> honestly, in Defender, the guys are on the ground and the UFO picks them up and you rescue them that way. In this game, these people are just flapping around willy-nilly in the vacuum of space. Yeah, they're just waiting to fall through a, a black hole and become a space baby. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a cat world. So none of us got past cat world. It's hard. And then it starts repeating like saucers again and they change the colors. So then you get green vampire ships. And then there's something called Mastermind. That's right. I did see that enemy on the attract screen, the mastermind. Yeah. And I never got to see them. I have no idea how they behave, but I imagine they're a lot more terrifying than Sinistar. I imagine <laughs> it's a lot of noise and color coming at you. <laughs> yeah, I looked up a uh, playthrough on YouTube to see some of these later levels, and I bet if I had seen this mastermind's level as a kid, this would have freaked me out. Looking at them, they kind of remind me of those brain creatures with the mechanical spider legs that you fight in Doom? Is that a cyber demon? Actually, that's called the Spider Mastermind. Is it really? Oh, wow. All right. So there you go. So yeah, if you can imagine that, just picture that without the spider legs and like low-res graphics. Maybe there's a conspiracy here. Maybe it involves the Illuminati, lizard people, and chemtrails. (laughs) Maybe in reality, Doom is the sequel to Blaster. (laughs) See, when I first looked at them and I saw Masterminds, I didn't see the blue thing on top as a brain. To me, it just kind of looked like an afro. (laughs) So I'm like, he's like some kind of robot face guy with an afro. Yeah, who's way into 70s funk. Yeah, he's in Parliament Funkadelic and he made a, a guest appearance in Blaster. 
sure. <laughs> Great guy. Yeah. And th- there's another level. It doesn't give a name, but it has a different looking spaceship than the Saucerland ones. They're like they're more complex looking. Now, considering the aforementioned story of Blaster, I'm going to assume that Paradise does not actually exist. Well, <laughs> the level right before Paradise is Armageddon. Are you kidding me? <laughs> No, because uh, eventually you fight some guy named Endoro who looks like he's got like a big crotch gun, and there's a bunch of him, and then you get a cat world. Is master- Eugene Jarvis a, like a nihilist? <laughs> what is with all the doom and gloom? I mean, the game tells you right from the start that you fail. Yeah, so wait, Rob, so you watch the playthrough. What, ha- what happens in Armageddon and then Paradise? Does it exist, or is it like a classic arcade game where they're like, and we're starting over? <laughs> well, this is where things get really weird. Paradise is basically a bunch of I want to say like ballerinas floating in space. It's way more than the the astronauts from the earlier stage. Like these are the only things in the level and there's a ton of them. It's just bizarre. But as far as I can tell after that, it just resets and, and continues. Wait, do you shoot the ballerinas or collect I, them or they're I just there? Yeah, I think you're supposed to collect them, but they're just like in, in the clouds. Like there'd be no way to collect them all at once. But at, I think at the very end, you see a little like smooch, like kiss thing as if they're they're kissing your windshield of your spaceship. Of course that happens because it wouldn't be a classic arcade game without just a touch of misogyny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Eugene Jarvis's paradise is apparently ballerinas. All right, well, at least he's into the arts. Sure. Why not? Blue Lagoon. <laughs> or Blue Danube. Sorry, wrong thing. <laughs> all right, now that we've all played and failed at this game, what ideas do you guys have in regard to improving the game's mechanic in such a way that it would have gave Blaster a more mainstream appeal. Hmm. Maybe let me hit the dip switches and uh, change the difficulty, because apparently <laughs> there are none. <laughs> Jarvis no like dip switches. Yeah, <laughs> Jarvis is like, to get to paradise, you gotta go the hard way. Like, you can't you can't give yourself more lives, you can't change the difficulty. Yeah, Eugene Jarvis is like, mm, do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. In the uh, Midway Arcade Treasures collection, you can actually change the difficulty and give yourself more lives. But at the same time, I'm not sure that's exactly what this game needs, because it's still the same kind of frantic... It's almost like bullet hell, actually, years before the concept really hit the arcades, because sometimes there's just too much on screen. I agree, and that's a great point. If I were to think of an improvement for this game... It would be a reticle. Just so aiming was a little easier. Is that an option in the Midway Classics? It's not, but that reminds me of something we hadn't mentioned yet, that, like, your shots don't really travel in a straight line as you're shooting things. It's like you've got four banks, so you're shooting from a different position each time. So on those formations where you're trying to hit, like, the one UFO or vampire that's red, it's really hard to avoid hitting the other ones. Right. It was very difficult to know where exactly you were pointed when shooting. Compound that with moving around in this first-person perspective, and the bullets start arcing. Yeah. So I think the game really would have benefited from having an on-screen reticle. And I don't think we discussed this, but in Blaster, there's no ship on the screen or cockpit. You're just 
flying through space. There are these four markers that make up a rectangular screen within the screen, I guess to show you within proximity what you're looking at and what your hit zone is. But even that's not real precise. Bullets will fly through there without you taking damage and then other times you will. I really think whether it would be a reticle or just a cockpit overlay, just to give you a better perspective of where you are in space. Yeah, I'm reminded of... I can't remember if it was Space Battle. It was a game for the Intellivision where it, it has a kind of first-person space type stages where your reticle basically represents your ship. So if the enemy shots hit the reticle and you can then move around to dodge. Uh, I felt like, though, there was kind of, um, not crosshairs, but like an outline of a, a, a rectangle that I thought was where my my sort of hitbox would be where as long as i can make sure the enemy shots don't hit that then i'm good but that didn't turn out to be the case i think it was just there for aesthetic reasons one thing that would have made this great though is if they had something more like a boss fight where instead of a dozen different things on the screen at once if maybe there was one thing that you had to hit multiple times like a lot of modern games like it, it switches things up, but then also gives you something to focus on instead of just a whole lot of things overstimulating you. Definitely. I think that would have been a welcome addition to this game. Let's just take this game, port it to the Super Nintendo, and use the Super FX chip. <laughs> yeah, and call it Star Fox. That's a great yeah, boom. idea. Great game. There we go. Right. You know what? At this point of the show is where we normally say, would we recommend this game? And I am a definite yes, but I am aware that the graphical aesthetics may turn people off despite the technical achievement of this game but if you're a fan of Star Fox and you want to see the foundations of that game I think this is worth a look and I think it's worth a look even if you're not a fan of Star Fox just to see what they were doing in 1983 at the very least try and fail at the first initial four stages I believe it's a very remarkable game how do you guys feel about recommending it I completely agree I, I feel like it's, it's so hard that it's hard to recommend this for fun, but I would definitely recommend this to anybody just to see where shooter games came from. Like, it might not be the first first-person shooter or the first cockpit-view space shooter, but it's one of the earliest, and it's probably the earliest game that I've seen that uses this kind of scaling sprite 3D, and that was huge in, like, the 90s. Both in the arcade and uh, on a lot of Super Nintendo games use this kind of sprite scaling to do 3D that looked really cool, but this is uh, so far before that, it's incredible that they even did this. Yeah, Eugene Jarvis, uh, inventor of Mode 7. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, add that to Wikipedia, cite our show, and see how many seconds it lasts before it's taken down. Quote me on it. It's truth. I recommend it. So yeah, definitely, Rob, hit the nail on the head. You want to see where all this started from, and as I was impressed when I saw what year it came from by the graphic style, I should give it a try. It's cool, and it's weird, and it's got that... 1980s feel that many of you can never experience the smoky uh, 1980s arcade but this can get you close to it yeah and stand on a milk crate while playing so you get the same experience the three of us just have. imagine you can't read anything and make it all up in your head all right movie taglines this is what we do at the end of the show now we're gonna pretend blaster instead of being a 1983 arcade game was a 1983 film and we are gonna give our movie tagline to get you into the theaters for blaster Let's start with you, Keith. Oh, man. Putting me right out front. Oof. That's okay. We'll edit all this out. Oh, yeah. You can just take it all out or leave it in to embarrass me. I mean, either way. No, we would never do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll save you because I, I think I've, I've got something. I think the tagline for this, if this was a movie, is only one pilot can save the ballerinas from the vampire space cats. <laughs> All right. Well, I think you hit on everything in the game. That would get me in the theaters. All right. I don't know if I could do better than Rob, but my movie tagline would be Blaster. The colors, Duke. The colors. I'm colorblind, kid. <laughs> Talk about nostalgia. That was an ice pop commercial. Keith, oh, last chance. Man. I'm, I'm going to uh, have to take a bogey on this because I have no idea. I barely can explain this game. How can I even think up a plot to this? <laughs> this is such a strange visual experience that I think if it was a movie, that could have been the tagline is, I don't know. I can't think of anything. <laughs> yeah, the, you're, the, the tagline is, Blaster, I don't know. You explain it. <laughs> All right, and now here is T.T. Schmookens with next week's We Talk Games Video Power Magazine Arcade Weekly Arcade Game Audio Clue. We shall see. Hello, I am T.T. Schmookens. Here is next week's We Talk Games Video Power Magazine Arcade Weekly Arcade Game Audio Clue. Good luck, dudes. All right, let's get ready to give our clues for next week's game, which will be week two of We Talk Games' second annual Schmuptember. But before we do that, let me remind everybody to visit wetalkgames.com. It's our portal. Find back episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast. We're linked to our Twitter, at We Talk Games. It's linked to our Facebook, WTG Podcast. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Like, comment, subscribe. It is the best way to support the show, and it costs you nothing. And if you want to show support in a monetary fashion, click on the Pro Gear Store and buy a T-shirt or a sticker or a poster. Yep, while you're doing that, Make sure to also check out Giant Media Ball at GiantMediaBall.com and at Giant Media Ball on Twitter. Giant Media Ball has a cavalcade of content for your consumption. Keith, what's your clue for next week's game? Uh, my clue for next week's game is before Cuphead. There was Gunhead. All right, and Rob, before we get to you, I want to remind all of our listeners to check out Rob every week on the Retro League podcast, theretroleague.com. What's your clue for next week? I would say the best weapon against the frog army is already built into your body. <laughs> all right, well, it seems like the both of your clues have covered the biological improvements that the character has. So my clue will be this. Be sure to tune in next week and hear me struggle to say this title. So for Jungle Rat Rob and Keith, the Robo Duke, I'm Kyle Von Kubik. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode of We Talk Games Arcade Weekly, week two of Schmuptember! Pew, pew, pew. <laughs>